You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. We're in 1 John chapter 2 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 11. We're going to be talking about a very familiar topic, love and hate. Everybody's familiar with that. That's something that we experience on a day in and day out basis to one degree or another. Um, I remember uh, years ago I had to have some outpatient surgery, and so it was the first time that I'd ever had an experience with uh, uh, hydrocodone. Has anybody ever taken hydrocodone? Um, I took that hydrocodone after I had the surgery. It was oral surgery. I got in the car. I was unable to drive home, so my wife drove me home. And I told her about every 15 seconds that I loved her. I just loved that hydrocodone. just made me love my wife so much that I could not tell her. I probably told her 150 times before we got home, that I loved her and how much I loved her. So the concept of love is a, a real thing for us this morning, but we're going to look at it in the text. Let me read the text for you this morning. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 7, and this is our fourth sermon in this series from 1 John. He says, Beloved, the beloved ones. Beloved means that they are Loved by him, but even to the extent of being loved by God. It is a term of endearment. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, in Christ and in you who are followers of Christ. And, it, and it's true because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So he gives us the commandment. The second thing he gives us is this, this unacceptability of hatred. If you'll go to verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light, this light that is dawning, this light that is shining, and hates his brother is still in darkness. The light being the illuminating work of Jesus Christ, Christ revealing himself and revealing his word and revealing his will and filling us with his spirit. So now we are in the light and we can see clearly. And if you say that you are in the light and you see clearly spiritually, but you hate, he says you are in darkness, moral darkness, spiritual darkness. Verse 9. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. The word abides mean remain, remains. You stay in the light. You are living consistently in this state of being illumined by Christ, by his spirit, by his word. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But he goes back to hatred again. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Here's what I want you to grasp from this text. In God's family, 
love is not optional and hatred is unacceptable. In God's family, for the Christian and for those of us who gather here, love is not optional and hatred is unacceptable. There are three things that I want you to take home from this text. Number one, commandments are inescapable. He goes to the pains of trying to say that there are commandments that are given. And so commandments are inescapable. When a command is given, not doing it is not an option. So whatever it is that he's teaching us in this text, he's not telling us this morning, hey, if you feel like it, it's okay, and if you don't feel like it, it's okay. Don't worry about it. He's saying, no, there is a command that I'm giving you. And when we think of commands, we think of prohibitions. We think of the ten commandments. And he uses the word command repeatedly in, in chapter 2 and verse 3. We saw that last week, and in then chapter 3, verses 11 to 18, and verses 22 to 24, and in chapter 4, in verse number 19, uh, and chapter 5, and verse 3. He gives us this idea of a commandment. What is a commandment? A commandment is an ordinance, and it's, it's an injunction, it's something that's required. A commandment is the law, and a commandment presumes that there is a lawgiver, number one, Number two, there is a law enforcer. And number three, there are consequences for not doing what you are commanded to do. Now, what commandment is he referring to? He's referring to the command of Jesus in John chapter 13, I believe. In John chapter 13, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, what's new about that? Right? I think this is what's new about it. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So there is a qualification to the love. It's a love like Christ loved. And he said this love is so essential that if this love doesn't exist in community, the mission of God will be thwarted. Notice what he says in verse 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So at, at the very baseline of our existence as human being, there, beings, there are these relationships. And at the baseline of relationships for Christians should be this love that we have for one another. Now, the question I would ask of the text is this. Why, why does John need to make such a big deal about something that is so obvious? Has there ever been a time when love was an option? Has there ever been a time when it was, uh, when it was acceptable to be unloving? Hasn't hatred always been unacceptable? Shouldn't we presume that love is not just an option that we have? Right? Who doesn't think that love should be the expected thing. But there's a problem. There's a problem. We crossed the line. There was a time when love existed. There was a time when perfect fellowship existed. There was a time when perfect relationship existed. There was a time when perfect love existed, and that existed in Adam and Eve's relationship with God the Father, in hum humanity's relationship with the Trinity. But Adam and Eve looked at God's commands and said, we'll take matters into our own hands. We will choose to sin and we will manage the consequences of our sin. And what was lost in their sin was this relationship with God the Father. What was lost in their sin was their relationship with each other. They went from Genesis 2.25 where they were naked and unashamed, where they were madly in love with, with each other, over to Genesis chapter 3 
where Adam is saying, that woman that you gave me is the reason for all of my sin. And then when you go to Genesis chapter 4, you see Cain and Abel, where Cain is angry at his brother Abel, and he literally killed him in the field. And we also see that in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 14. He mentions hatred and references Cain and Abel right here in this book. So there was a time when there was this love that John's talking about, but all of that was messed up in the fall. Sin makes agape love unsustainable. Sin makes sustained agape love in community impossible. impossible. Sustained agape love in community is only possible when we are in fellowship with the Trinity. When our relationship with God is broken, hate Dominates, and we are in moral darkness, living for ourselves and for our own glory. That's what sin does to us. Sin essentially, at its very root, destroys our relationship with God and destroys our relationship with each other and makes the love that God gives us a longing for in our heart impossible. Let that sink in this morning. But we know Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we have the fall, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus Christ came and he transformed hearts and he brought us out of darkness into light. He gave us a new heart a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. He gave us a new nature. He gave us a new mind. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says we have the mind of Christ. He gave us the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1.27 says Christ in you, the hope of glory. He has given us the word of God. Colossians 3.16 tells us let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He's given us a new life. He's given us a new family. He's given us a new operational motivation. And out of his great love and power and out of his great transforming work. He then gives this command, this command that he expects his people to obey. Love one another like I have loved you. This is achievable and expected because of the finished work of Christ. But I still haven't answered the question why would John go to all of the trouble to lay out the majority of this passage by telling us that love and love like Christ loved us is a command? Why is John taking something so familiar that we almost assume and telling us it's something that we have to do? And I believe that he's doing that because of the way that we in our humanness of you love and hate and how we misinterpret and misunderstand love and hate. We essentially view love as optional. It's, it's primarily generated from feeling or emotion. Think about it. We view love as optional. We really, really, really only love very few people. But there's a command that's coming to us as believers saying we should love one another as Christ has loved us based solely and purely on what Christ has done. We love certain people based on proximity, experience, criteria, 
attraction, on and on we could go. We fall in love, right? We fall in love. It's not something that we choose, but we fall into it. Love is spontaneous. Love is magical. We naturally love condition. We love based on asset or performance. And hate is the same way. You have hate in your heart this morning because somebody offended you, somebody hurt you, somebody cheated you, somebody abused you, somebody rubbed you the wrong way. You have a personality conflict with somebody. Therefore, you have this place in your heart and in your mind to hate them. And so we view love and hate as options, number one. But number two, we view love and hate as things that we can't help. So when he comes and he says, you're supposed to love and I'm commanding you to love. We say our response to that is I'll love them if I feel like loving them. I'll love them if there is some love generated from my heart for them. And he says hate is unacceptable. There is this command, but based on that command, you don't understand, Lord, how bad they hurt me. I can't help but hate and I can't help but love. And he's coming out of nowhere with a command. So let us get down to brass tacks with what this text is dealing with. Let's get to the bottom line. This, what is in this text for those of us who say we are a believer in Christ, what is in this text is a clear commandment. It is required. It's not open for debate. It's not open for interpretation. It's not open for analysis. You can't get to anything that is more clear, more rudimentary, more simple, more unassailable, more propositional in its communication than this very clear command for us to love one another, everybody in this room that you are connected to in Christ as Christ has loved us. Even the people in this room that you don't know, you have the responsibility to love. Listen, there are no conditions to this love. There is no performance necessary. There is no uh, connection. Are you from North Carolina? Well, naturally, I should love you more. I mean, there's heightened intelligence and higher degree of spiritual awareness and on and on we could go with that, right? So I love you more because you're from North Carolina. Or if you love basketball, if you, you love to hunt, or you love old cars, then I love you more. No, that's not what he's saying. There are no conditions to it. We don't have the right to place conditions on loving one another in the body of Christ. There is no condition. There is no performance. There is no connection. There is no common ground except the common ground that we find in Jesus Christ. So he's saying, I'm giving you a command, and there are no ifs, ands, and buts about it. Everybody that knows Christ, that is in the beloved, that is in the family, has the responsibility of loving one another. The second thing we see is this, and I'll go back to my main, my main statement. If in God's family, love is not optional and hatred is unacceptable, and all of that is based on the work that he has put in to show us that it is a commandment. But secondly... Hatred is unacceptable. Now, let me, let me just unpack hatred for a minute and talk to you about hatred. What is hatred? And what does hatred look like? And where does hatred come from? I want you to think about it. Because if I were to ask everybody in the room today, if I were to say, hey, do you hate anybody? Everybody like, no, man, I don't hate anybody. I don't hate anybody. Hate's a strong word, right? Well, do you love people? Oh, man, I'm very loving. 
right? But let's unpack hatred. As we look at hatred, first of all, what is hatred? The word hatred means to detest. It means to love less. It means to esteem less. It means to denounce as less. It means to renounce one choice in favor of another. Hatred. That's, that's a, a, a pretty generic word. It's a catch-all word, right? It's a catch-all word. You need to understand that. There are a lot of things that go on in our hearts that we say this is okay because by my definition, I would never say that I hate. Hate's a strong word, but I might have a lot of other words that would give me permission to cross over into the realm of hate but not call it hate. We need to understand that this morning. Essentially what was happening in 1 Corinthians when there were people showing up and bringing big meals and they were having the Lord's table, people were abusing the table and what was being done at the table was that those who had resources and those who had uh, money and wealth and prominence and position were coming to the table and enjoying the table and, and they were despising those who didn't have as much as they did. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that is a form of hatred, but I also want to suggest to you that hatred is probably more prominent than we recognize because when we are not loving like we are supposed to love, we are probably expressing ourselves in ways and relating in ways that are more akin to hatred than love. Let me give you some text and ask you to think about them this morning. Over in Galatians chapter 5, and I'm just going to walk through uh, a, couple of, um, a couple of descriptors of people who are, what the text would say, are lost. Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 19 says, says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. All of these things are relational. He said people that do these things, people that do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? Right? Now, we're not willing to say that we hate somebody, but can I ask you, is there any enmity? Can I ask you, is there any strife? Can I ask you, is there any jealousy? Can I ask you, are there any fits of anger? Can I ask you, are there rivalries? Are there divisions? Are there dissensions? Is there envy? If you look over in Colossians chapter 3, in verse 8, but now we must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscure talk, or obscene talk. Obscene talk. I had a line driven through, drawn through it. Obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Why, why do we lie to people? That is, that is taking someone in such low Regard that we are not compelled to be honest with people. Lying to people is a sin against people. 
He says, put off the old self with its practices. Put on the new self. Be renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so we see these other descriptors in 1 Timothy 3.1. He's, he's, uh, it seems like anyway, and maybe I missed something, but in 1 Timothy 3.1, he's talking, he's talking about people in church. Listen to 1 Timothy 3.1. He says, excuse me, 2 Timothy 3.1. But understand this, in the last days there will, be, there, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, Look at verse 3, having the appearance, or verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. These are people in the church who are carrying on this kind of activity. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, um, verse 1, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. All of those are relational terms. And I believe that these things that we will cooperate with because we don't call them hate, I believe they come under the heading, the general catch-all heading of hate based on hate's definition. So think about it. Contempt. Contempt. Do you feel contempt for someone this morning? I would say that you hate the person you feel contempt toward. I would say that resentment comes under the category of hatred. I would say that ambivalence comes under the category of hatred. Say, so I'm just going to treat you like you don't exist. You know what you're doing when you treat somebody like they don't exist? You're treating them like you wish they were dead. Right? Well, that's what the cold shoulder is. You're treating somebody like you wish they were dead. That's what ambivalence is. You don't exist. I don't hear you. I don't see you. I don't, I don't want anything to do with you. You hurt me. The silent treatment, avoidance, gossip. Gossip is hatred. Why would you want to talk about somebody behind their back to somebody else so as to shape another person's view of somebody because you feel negative about them? You want the whole world to feel negative about them because you hate them. Everybody should hate them. A critical spirit, a demeaning attitude. Has anybody said you're acting hateful? That's hateful. That's a hateful way to talk to somebody. That's a hateful way to look at somebody. Scripture equates hatred with murder. So, what is hatred? I think hatred is more than we're willing to say that it is. And I think hatred exists more than we're willing to admit in our hearts and in our lives and in our relationships. And Scripture digs in to say this is unacceptable. What drives hatred? Self-righteousness drives hatred. Pride drives hatred. Power drives hatred because we, out of our hatred or our desire to get even or our desire to see someone else punished when they've done us wrong, that's what drives our hatred and our desire to see them get, be gotten even with, right? We want them to get what they deserve when Scripture says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. 
We shouldn't take it upon ourselves in our heart or our attitude to look at others or treat others in ways that we want to get even with them or mete out vengeance on them. What drives hatred? Self-righteousness drives hatred. You sinned against me. You shouldn't have sinned against me. You sinned against the wrong person. I don't deserve to be sinned against. By the way, the Son of God did not deserve to be sinned against, but he went as a lamb before the slaughter, and he bore our offenses. He was punished for our crimes. He was punished for our sin. What drives hatred? Subjective justice drives hatred. All of the justice that we're hearing about in our culture today is subjective justice. And by the way, everybody is quoting Micah, do justice and love mercy. The only way that justice can ever be done is if we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. That, that is where love and justice meet there in that place. And if I am looking for justice, if I am looking to get even, let me ask you a question. What happens when we get even? By the way, if I I have offended you, and therefore you get the right to offend me to the same degree that I offend you, then that's justice by our culture's definition. But let me ask you something. What if I offended you to a level 10, to a number 10 on the offense scale, and what if you offend me to a level 11? And by the way, offense is um, subjective. I decide how much the offense is worth, and I'll decide when you have paid off that offense. But what if I only offend you to a level 10, and you offend me to a level 11? Well, guess what? I've got to get you back now. And it never ends, and it never has ended. It's been going on since the Garden of Eden, since the fall. And it's never going to end until we rest in the justice that Christ accomplished for us in him. So subjective justice drives hatred. Sin and brokenness and fallenness and blindness and darkness drive hatred. To be in darkness is to be driven by hatred. To be blind and unable to see and unable to understand and not being illumined by the light of Christ is to stumble around and live a life of hatred. So, so many times there are those that have been broken by sin. Their lives have been crushed by sin. The only response that they know apart from the gospel is to lash out in hatred because the pain is so severe. Hatred is not indicative of something bad happening to you. It is indicative of something bad happening inside of you. Please hear that. Hatred doesn't mean, man, something bad really happened to you. Hatred means there are a ton of things going on inside of you that you can't seem to re resolve. And, and hatred is like poison. Hatred is like cancer. It just grows. Hatred is driven by an unregenerate heart. Hatred is driven by an unregenerate motivational system. Hatred is driven by an unregenerate self-awareness and perspective. Hatred is driven by a sense of how dare they look at me, speak to me, treat me, whatever you want to say, because I believe I deserve better. Therefore, I'm going to hate you. How does hatred manifest itself? Hatred manifests itself in thoughts. Hatred manifests itself in countenance. If you, if you just study any study you want to study about how people look at each other and how people... I've got, I've got a, I've got a five-month-old grandchild, and that grandchild can already has an awareness probably at about six months old as to what I feel about her based on the countenance of, of my face. Countenance is universal. Facial expressions are universal. Even, even so much as in a universality of countenance in primates. 
You can look at someone and you can tell if they're angry. You can look at someone and tell if they love you. You can look at someone and tell. I, I love the passage where Jesus was dealing with the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler is talking about all of his self-righteousness. And the Bible says this, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Hatred shows up in our countenance. Hatred shows up in our words. One of, one of, the, one of the, the most damaging tools that we can ever use in our expression of hatred is our words that, are, that do great damage and harm and violence to other people. When we are speaking sharply and critically, we use our words intended to hurt. So there's verbal violence, there's snide comments, there's insinuation. Tone, our tone says we hate. Our cold shoulder says we hate. Our disappointment in people, I'm so disappointed in you. I'm so disappointed in you. What in the world does that accomplish? You want to crush me? Fine. Tell me how Tell me what a what a, a sorry piece of scum I am by telling me how. Because you have set a standard, right? And you are the keeper of that standard. When uh, the the call of Christ would say we love one another, not express these words of hatred. And some of this maybe is hitting close to home because many of you are relating dysfunctionally on the basis of interpersonal hatred. That's tough to swallow. How does hate justify itself? I deserve to hate you because I don't deserve to be hurt by you. I'm too good to be mistreated or discriminated against or talked down to or looked down on and, or not be given what I deserve or treated unjustly. That's how hatred justifies itself. How do people in church process hate? We deny it. Hate is much more common than we're willing to admit. We justify it. Well, if you don't know what I've been through, being a victim justifies a multitude of sins. Beware of victimology. We adjust to it and become anywhere from tolerant to comfortable with it. It's second nature to us. We develop a critical tone and we become subtly critical and proudly superior when our hearts are hateful. You are not walking in light. You are walking in darkness. Listen carefully. If the predominant internal churnings of your life are driven by hatred. Now, I, I didn't say that you can't have a, a, a moment where there are a tense moment. You can't have a falling out, but I'll tell you, the gospel of Jesus Christ would call us to repentance. The gospel of Jesus Christ would call us to reconciliation. The text is saying, man, if you can, if this is how you're operating and you can stay there and your, your conscience is never smitten by it and you're content to operate in all of these things that Scripture says are absolutely unacceptable for the life of, of a believer and this is where you remain and this is the pattern of your life, then you are unregenerate. 
In God's family, love is not optional and hate, hatred is unacceptable. But there's a, there's a third thing that I want you to see, and that's this. And we see it in one verse, in verse 10. He takes all of this time to establish the basis for this command, and then he tells us what this command isn't. We, we can't walk in darkness. We can't hate our brothers. If we say that we walk in the light and hate our brother, we're still in darkness. But he comes to verse 10, and he tells us this morning that love is not optional. Hate is unacceptable, but love is not optional. So let's try to define it. What is love? Love is a desire to live a life of sacrifice that is, that is motivated by the transforming power of the gospel and manifested in serving or giving my life away for the benefit of others. So love's a feeling. Therefore, if I feel love, I don't ever have to act on love. I would say no. Love is defined as a desire to live a life of sacrifice that's motiv motivated by the transforming power of the gospel and manifested in serving and giving my life away for the benefit of others without regard for how I am perceived or remembered. In other words, if somebody's angry at me, somebody's hateful to me, somebody's disrespectful to me, I still have this command from Christ to love one another as he has loved me and to move toward them no matter what the circumstances are. He, he makes it clear in 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 16. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Love is not coming to church on Sunday morning. Love is not going to life group. Love is not being a part of DNA. Love is living a life of self-sacrifice, laying down your life for the good of others based on the motivating power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love is, is having an open heart. Love is being vulnerable. If you will look at verse 17, he says, but if anyone has this world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Anybody that sees somebody in need and then rationalizes their responsibility to help someone in the body in need has essentially, basically, at the core of their being, closed off their heart. Love is having an open heart. Love is being vulnerable. Love is being sacrificial. Love is having a heart for those in our body. Love is having open hands. Love is spiritual, love is internal according to this text, and love is practical. So that's what love is. What, what is it that, that drives love? 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 19, we love him because he first loved us. His, he loved us and his love is being perfected in us. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 5, which we looked at last week. His love is in those who know him and it is maturing and growing and claiming more and more ground in the heart of the believer and shining more and more brightly in the life of the believer. In other words, we are in this process of being perfected by his love love and the degree of his work in us and the perfecting of his love is, is only gauged by how we relate in loving relationships with each other. So we love because Christ first loved us and his love is being perfected in us. That's why John can say if you are 
controlled by hate and not by love. Christ is not in you. But if this is the driving force of your attitudes, your countenance, your words, your thoughts, your engagement with others, then that is evidence of you walking in Christ and abiding in Christ, and it is a part of your life remaining in Christ. How does love manifest itself? Love manifests itself in attitude, action, and words. Love manifests itself in death to self, self-sacrifice, humility. Love gives itself away without the expectation of anything in return. Love pursues those we have offended and those who have offended us, right? Someone's offended you, you go to them. You, you go to the altar and you remember that there is someone that you have an offense against or so, someone has an offense. The existence of offense, we pursue offense. Love covers sin. That's what Scripture says. Love is not quick to point out others' faults and sins. Love does not seek to expose and humiliate, but love covers a multitude of sin. Love encourages others with the hope of the gospel. Love is life-giving. It is equipping. It is loyal. It gives others, others the benefit of the doubt. Love is thinking the best, assuming the best. That's 1 Corinthians 13 over and over again. Love has a character of unbreakableness to it. Love gives us a sense of belonging. If we, listen folks, if we are a loving fellowship Anybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ should walk in here the first Sunday and they should feel like they belong here. And if somebody walks in and you don't know them and you let them walk by you and you don't even notice them because you've got your own thing going on or you're talking to the same person that you talked to for the past 36 Sundays, people, people need to walk in this room. If there is love, hear and feel a sense of belonging. Love forgives. One guy told me one time, he said, I, I, I'm not going to forgive them until they ask me. Well, thank God Jesus wasn't that way. Love means we are valued and cared for. Love, love means we are noticed that we're listened to, that we know that we are wanted. Love means honesty and transparency. That's what love is. That's how love manifests itself in our lives. So look at your relationship and look at how you relate. Do you see those qualities there? Do you see those qualities here? How is love possible? Love is possible and powerful when we walk in the light. Listen carefully. When we abide in light, the illuminating power of his presence, his self-revelation, we are transparent and vulnerable. That's what it means to abide in the light. That's what it means to abide in the light. You find a community of people that are transparent and vulnerable, and I'll show you a community of people that love one another. You say, why? You say, why? Because apart from transparency and vulnerability, listen, we will never have a relationship with each other. Apart from transparency and vulnerability, we will never have fellowship with each other. Because quite frankly, apart from transparency and vulnerability, I don't know you and you don't know me. We don't know each other. We're playing a game where we're in a mask. We're just kidding ourselves. 
That's what he's saying, man. You, you love each other, and love is possible because we're walking in the light, and because we're walking in the light, we're not stumbling around on all of these uh, images that we're trying to project of ourselves, but we're just real. There are people that come here every week, and they're screaming on the inside, and they feel so broken and so dirty and so hopeless. And yet, most of the time, we walk in and act like we got all our junk together. And it's, quite frankly, in our vulnerability, in our transparency, that the gospel can be proclaimed loudly and practiced tangibly. And then people walk in and say, wow, love is there. Love is there. I saw it for myself. Love is real. Love is powerful. It's only when we are, and that's what he tells us in 1 John. He, notice verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. There's vulnerability, there's transparency. In him there is no cause for stumbling. There is nothing that draws and knits hearts together like transparency and vulnerability. That's what it means to remain in the light, to live this life of God-awareness which produces self-awareness, which gives us grace-awareness and drives us to see others with compassion and love and move toward them. Folks, that ought to be the baseline gathering of Christian believers and how we relate to one another. Love is impossible in darkness because in darkness we're stumbling over sin, we're stumbling over hate, we're stumbling over pride. But love is possible and powerful when we're walking in the light and not stumbling over everything before us, but looking to Christ, the great lover of our soul. I'm almost done. Love is far less common than hate and far more costly Love is far less common than hate and far more costly. Quite frankly, while you're living here on this earth, it's a lot easier to hate people than it is to love people. It's going to cost you more to love people. So, hey, find you a reason to be angry. Find you a reason to feel dejected. Find you a reason to be marginalized. And by the way, you're then off the hook from loving. Right? That's what we do. Because I'm telling you, loving people is costly. Loving people is exhausting. Loving people does not get easier over time. Love is uncomfortable. It demands that we break free from our comfort zone. Love demands that we love everyone, not just those that we feel like loving or choose to love. The greatest problem that the church has is this. People in the world walk into the church expecting something to be different. What should be different? The one thing that they're really looking for is are these people real? And do these people really love? Anyone should walk into this place at any time and see love, feel love, hear love, know love, experience love, and know that it is powerful because love is supposed to live here and love is supposed to live at your house, in your neighborhood, on your street, in your marriage. And far too often, 
Lost people don't reject us because they don't believe the truth that we proclaim. They reject us because they see that we relate just like everybody else is lost in unloving ways. In God's family, love is not optional and hatred is unacceptable. Let me, let me just close with this. Um, I went, went to seminary. Um, there was an extension. I moved to Atlanta, uh, Fairburn, Georgia, 1989. Just trying to give you a little context. You may not be interested in it, but that's okay. You can get it anyway. I, you probably have my history memorized as much as I talk about myself. Um, I went, went to Fairburn, Georgia, 1989, and started going to seminary. I'd been to college and gotten a four-year degree in Bible, and then I went to seminary to get a master's degree. And one of my first classes, and, and because I lived in Fairburn, I always passed by the airport. And so the head of the seminary, the seminary extension would say, hey, would you stop by and pick up the professors? And so I pick up, um, I pick up my homiletics professor, and he was, he was a great guy, wrote a big, thick book on homiletics. And we'd go to, he loved to eat at Houston's back when there was Houston's and loved to get steak and shrimp. And he paid, and so I enjoyed it. And, and uh, I picked up uh, Dr. Barnes' uh, history Professor, I think Dr. Barnes has passed. One of the coolest guys I ever met was a guy named Edward Teeley. You can look him up. You can see his picture. He was always sharp, always warm, always kind. He taught spiritual formation class. And, and let, me, let me just tell you this about Ed Teeley. I, I don't know if Ed Teeley was a, a Calvinist or an Arminian. I don't know if he was a cessationist or a continuationist. I don't know if he was young earth or old earth. I don't know if he was pre-mill, post-mill, or I-mill. I don't know if he was Pado or credo baptism. I don't know if he used the ESV, the KJV, the NRSB, the NASB. I don't know what translation Ed Teeley used. We never discussed Luther or Calvin or Edwards or Finney or MacArthur or Piper. I don't know if he liked traditional or contemporary music. I don't know if he liked hymns or Hillsong. I just don't know. But what I do know about Ed Teeley is that he loved me. He loved me. And he loved the students in that room. And he loved his wife. And he loved Jesus. And folks, everything that I just mentioned is important. But the point of the text is this. There's something much more important than a lot of the things we get all wrapped up in. And it's this, how much we love one another. And I remember every week, he had a beautiful voice. And he would start singing. Just a cappella. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. And all these guys in the room will be singing to worship you. Oh, my heart, rejoice. And we would just sing. Take joy, my king, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. And that room would just be filled up with all of those, no offense, ladies, all those male voices and all that full part harmony. That was such a great time.
when folks come here or when they go to your house or they meet you on the street, they ought to walk away if there's any point of interaction saying, man, I really felt the love of Christ. If I could bring a big 2,500-gallon reservoir in here, we could fill it up and there would still be more love of Jesus. But if we could see that tangibly and physically and we could say, man, let's just pour this out everywhere. It's already been poured out. It's been shed abroad in your heart so that you can go shed abroad the limitless resources of the love of Christ to those who are around us that don't believe love is possible. But the reality is love should live here. Love should live here. Love should live here. Let's pray together. Father, I pray you would help us this morning. Help us to look at Scripture and forget about how we feel and forget about what we think and recognize that a very clear and simple command has come our way. And that command is for us to love one another as you have loved us. And so, God, great God of mercy and grace, I pray that you would smile on us this morning. I pray that you would speak to our hearts and convict us of our sin. I pray that you would help us this morning to see our hatred, to name it for what it is and to admit that we are walking in darkness and if there is one here today that doesn't know you, I pray that they would turn to you today. And I, I pray for that believer this morning that's struggling and it's a balancing act that probably would be all of us. I pray that you would help us today to realize that the light is shining and Lord, you are perfecting your love in us and I pray that we would hear this command. I pray, I pray that we would recognize the unacceptability of our hateful actions that are rooted in a lack of love. And I pray that you would help us to remove the scales and open our hearts and unleash from our soul the love that has been poured into us when you saved us. May that be a reality here at South Point in Jesus' name. Amen.